0: Your film is now ready to be shown.
1: Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This week, we have two interviews. The first is with Albert Fox-Kahn, the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project's founder and executive director, about a column he wrote in Wired magazine about problems with the Twitter verification process that disadvantage activists. And second, I talk with Jonathan Stray. Jonathan is a visiting scholar at the Center for Human-Compatible Artificial Intelligence at the University of California at Berkeley. I talk with Jonathan about whether social media can help depolarize society. In May, Twitter relaunched its verification program and has offered more clarification about how the process works following criticism and missteps such as verifying fake accounts. I spoke to Albert Foxconn about the holes in the program and how they affect
0: journalists and activists. Here's Albert. My name is Albert Foxconn. I'm the executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. I'm also a visiting fellow at Yale Law School's Information Society Project
2: and according to this column in wired magazine that you wrote last week you are not a reporter but you are verified as one on twitter why is that a problem albert
0: well when twitter rolled out this new verification standard they were responding to the public backlash after they had you know enabled white supremacists by verifying some really prominent destructive accounts Twitter was saying it was trying to do better, to be more intentional. But when I went through the verification process, I found a really dysfunctional mess that was systematically excluding a lot of the activists who Twitter was claiming to want to uplift.
2: Walk us through just really briefly, what does one have to do to get verified these days by Twitter?
0: For a while, Twitter's process was secretive. It was all behind closed doors. No one knew what to do. Now there's a simple form. You go to your account settings, you click a link and you get a survey. And so Twitter put out rules where depending on how you're getting verified, why you're claiming you deserve to be verified, there are different criteria. If you're in government, all you need is a government website. That's it. But if you're an activist, you have to go through a whole lot of hoops more hoops than anyone else. You have to show that you have one of the most popular accounts, the top 0.5% in your region. You have to show you've coined a hashtag. You have to show that you have a Wikipedia page. There's a lot more there than for basically anyone else. And for me, as someone who, you know, for my day job, I, I I do political organizing. I do a lot of work to try to get in the face of the NYPD. For me, it was just really frustrating that, you know, none of that work would meet their criteria of what was a, quote, notable activist.
2: And you refer in the piece in Wired to a handful of others that you spoke to, who have gone through this process and and what it means to them. Can you talk a little bit about their experiences?
0: Yeah. As, as soon as it happened to me, I started looking around on Twitter at, at some of the other you know, people who had been denied verification. It was just really staggering. You know, Tawana Preddy, who works at Data for Black Lives, has been an incredible community-based organizer in Detroit for years, doing some of the most important work at the forefront of data and society issues. She was denied. You know, I I would see over and over again that sort of story playing out. Angela Lang, who uh, works with uh, Block, Sorry, is the executive director of Block, an incredible Milwaukee-based group that has been on the front lines of activating, you know, black and brown communities throughout um, last year's election and well beyond. Again, someone who was shut out. And so what became quite clear is that not only was this verification system rigged, it was rigged in a way that particularly disadvantaged and suppressed the voices of black and brown leaders.
2: And if folks want to verify those two accounts are still not verified, uh, Tawana Petty at uh, at Combs the Poet, C-O-M-B-S, the Poet, uh, and Angela Lang, Angela underscore Lang, both unverified to date. You also heard back from some journalists who said, hey, this is not just a problem for activists. It's also a problem for us. What, What was some of the response to the piece?
0: Yeah. So one one thing that came quickly as a takeaway is, you know, I went through this process and I showed that a month after I was denied as an activist, I could get approved as a journalist, quote unquote, because I write a lot of op-eds and like that just speaks to a lot of privilege I bring into this work. But in the course of the piece, I was highlighting how it's much easier for journalists than for activists to get verified. But that doesn't mean it's easy. And it doesn't mean that every journalist who, deserves to be verified actually is getting that certification and and part of the problem appears to be just in what counts as a byline to Twitter so if you're a freelance journalist you need to submit the pieces you've authored and they have to be in qualifying publications but they never say which publications qualify they give a list of some criteria that come into play and in figuring out if a outlet is you know reputable enough But they never come out and say outright who is and isn't a a trusted outlet. And and so it seems like a lot of particularly progressive uh, journalists are are being shut out of the system yet again because they're writing, they're doing incredible reporting, but they're still being denied. Another uh, problem that came up is that there's a lot of people who are doing really important reporting projects, but they take a while. You know, there are people who are doing books, they're doing long form reporting and, you know, under Twitter system, you need those three uh, headlines within, you know, six months. Well, that doesn't differentiate between a full book and just doing a 600 word op-ed. All they care about is the number of bylines you have. So, again, you know, in trying to make this into a numbers game. Twitter is creating a system that really is unjust and which is broken.
2: How's your life changed
0: since you got verified? Has it had any utility to you? (laughs) You know, I found out all the secrets. I saw things open. I mean, the truth is it's subtle, right? I already had a well-known group. I already was affiliated with leading law schools, but I did see an uptick in the number of people following me. I did see an uptick in the uh, how my stories spread and you know these things ebb and flow, but it is an important indicator of reliability to a lot of people, to, of credibility. I mean, there are some filters that will simply make it impossible for you to be seen at all if you're not verified. But for me, it's just another credential, another way of having my voice heard a bit more loudly which would be fine if not for all of the ways that the system is rigged in whose voices are heard and who are shut out.
2: I'd have to verify this is still the case, but um, I also have a, a verified account on Twitter. And I, I do believe that I see fewer responses to my tweets as a result when Twitter's algorithm flags that those responses might somehow be carry a sentiment or carry language that is not necessarily deemed reasonable or whatever so i i I do think that verified accounts have some filters applied to them um, that aren't applied to typical accounts
0: yeah there's a lot that i disable on the back end to prevent twitter from uh using those algorithmic filters to shape what i do and don't see but you're right, for a lot of verified users, they simply are are getting this tunnel vision where they're seeing disproportionately more comments from other verified users. And it, it can easily perpetuate the echo chamber that we know happens all too often on social media.
2: What would you like to see Twitter do in order to address this problem? What would you ask the company to do?
0: When I spoke to... Uh, anti-racist economist Kim Creighton about it, you know, her answer was simple. Have Twitter look at the work that people are doing on the ground. And to me, what that says is we need to have a human-driven review. But what Twitter has tried to do here is try to use these numbers to try to limit the amount of questions that actual human beings have to solve, right? Because they could just as easily have the same policy for activists that they do for government officials, but they want to have this extra layer of exclusion to limit the number of accounts that actually, you know, go through that process. You know, this is the same process we've seen play out with Facebook and the other social media companies where they try to find ways to use algorithms to determine what speech should be heard and what should be hidden. And every time that happens, we see really problematic results. Are there safety issues here? Definitely. For a lot of activists, for a lot of journalists, there's a real risk that, you know, when they're unverified that an impersonator account can come in, can try to reach out to people, try to gain compromising information and really disrupt their ability to to do their work, you know. A lot of the activists I spoke to kept bringing this up. For them, it was first and foremost a question of how did they protect the people in their community from from those sorts of fake accounts? Because that's not a you know hypothetical threat. That that's happened a lot, particularly to Black Lives Matter protesters and other you know grassroots organizers.
2: Albert Foxconn, thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Like me of the
1: If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press/podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. Jonathan Stray is a visiting scholar at the Center for Human Compatible Artificial Intelligence at the University of California at Berkeley. Jonathan conducts research into the ways in which social media algorithms affect human well-being. Before joining the Center at Berkeley, Jonathan was a research fellow at the Partnership on AI, taught dual masters in computer science and journalism at Columbia University, and built software for investigative journalism. There is an active debate about the conditions in which and the extent to which social media plays a role in contributing to polarization and division in society. I spoke to Jonathan about his new paper, Designing Recommender Systems to Depolarize, which turns that debate on its head, asking whether social media platforms could play a role in reducing division. Jonathan's paper, quote, examines algorithmic depolarization interventions with the goal of conflict transformation, not suppressing or eliminating conflict, but moving towards constructive conflict. Here's Jonathan.
3: Hey, I'm Jonathan Stray, and I'm a uh, visiting scholar at the Berkeley Center for Human Compatible AI. You
2: have published a paper, a preprint, designing recommender systems to
3: depolarize. What, what did you set out to do with this paper? This is really the the culmination of a train of thought that I've been following for three or four years, on what is this polarization thing anyway, and what do recommender systems, so social media, news aggregators, all that stuff, have to do with it, and and how should we approach this problem?
2: What could you tell the listener about the relationship between social media and polarization?
3: Gosh, okay, so we should start with what is polarization anyway, and we all kind of know already, right? It's the experience of living in a divided society, Uh, but you can get a little more precise in a number of ways. Um, So you could talk about polarization at the elite level, you know, so congressional voting patterns. You could talk about um, issue position collapse. So why is it that if I know how you feel about climate change, I can probably say how you feel about abortion rights, right? Those things have no sort of logical connection, and yet they sort of collapse down to one side. Um, or you can talk about it in terms of the, the sort of feeling of, of dislike and distrust of the other side. And that's really, I think, the, the thing that a lot of scholars have zeroed in on recently, which is, you know, as someone put it to me recently, very bluntly, uh, let's face it, we hate each other. So that's not healthy. And how do we move forward from there? And so I've been trying to ask, you know, as a lot of people have, what's social media's role in that? really gone through um, everything I can find sort of sort of looking at that connection.
2: Folks are in particular, I think, interested in the most extreme aspects of polarization. Uh, we just saw, of course, a, a, a violent insurrection um, at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. We're seeing across the country right now these arguments about things like critical race theory, of course, uh, masking and the vaccine. How does this paper relate to those types of problems?
3: The main thing that I'm trying to do is uh, pull in a bunch of thinking and ideas and practice from the peace building tradition. And so these are people, this started sort of after World War II, you know, after the creation of the UN, there was a lot of sort of optimism about peace. And so it, peace became a profession and it's gone through several iterations and there's now a, a discipline. Uh, a way of thinking and a group of people whose job it is to try to uh, help divided societies to move forward. It's interesting you said, you know, even, even just what you just said, right, the insurrection on January 6th, a fair fraction of the country would not call it an insurrection. So even right there, we kind of have a problem, right? It's really important to a lot of people to call it an insurrection. It's really important to a lot of people to not call it an insurrection. So how do we move forward? And what does uh, not just justice, but peace look like in that case? I've been really trying to sort of go back to basics and answer these questions of, what do you do when there's violent conflict? A listener might reasonably ask, but, but there was an insurrection. So
2: what do we do when there's a kind of disagreement entirely on the sort of, I don't know, what the fact pattern
3: is, or what the fact base is in a particular circumstance, which seems to be so often the case these days. Yeah, I guess now we're, we're sort of getting, getting right to the heart of it. So before sort of going into the, the details, let me, let me back up slightly and say that, uh, I'm very influenced by a tradition called conflict transformation, uh, as distinguished from conflict resolution. So conflict resolution is we have to end this conflict conflict. Transformation is we have to change it in some way. And one of the key differences is that conflict transformation sees conflict as normal. It's part of how societies change. I mean, you can think of democracy itself as a conflict transformation interventions. We're going to vote instead of hitting each other with sticks. Then the question is, what's better conflict versus worse conflict? Um, And a lot has been said about this as well. Sometimes you say constructive or destructive conflict or healthy or unhealthy conflict. And one of the things you can say is that violence, physical violence, is destructive conflict. So we're trying to find a way to move the conflict to a space where we're not fighting about it violently, but uh, moving through it in some other way. And I think interpersonally, everybody's had this experience, the difference between a good argument and a bad argument. You know, A bad argument felt like uh, you came way worse. Everybody got hurt. Uh, you went to the ugly place. Some words got said that you can't take back. Uh, a good argument, you know, it's not about agreeing with someone. It's about understanding where you disagree and uh, having both respect for yourself and respect for the other person. So, where is that actual disagreement? Uh, and I think, I think that's, it can be quite hard to get into that kind of space because it's a very vulnerable space. There's this idea that, you know, we don't push back hard against the other side, they're going to win. But I think that's an illusion as well. There's, there's no winning this conflict. The idea that, one side can just remove the other side from American politics when they're so evenly matched is is ludicrous. So we need something else. And that's really what I'm trying to get at with uh, some of the ideas in this work. I suppose it's maybe
2: the right time to to bring in the idea of, of social media and algorithms and the role that you think they could play in this. And maybe I'll back up once more. Um, you know, you you look, of course, at the role of social media in potentially exacerbating Mm -hmm. problems of polarization and division. You distinguish that from radicalization and extremism at some level. Mm -hmm. Is social media partly to blame for the problems we're facing
3: today? Yeah. So this is the question everybody wants to answer, right? Um, It's definitely involved. I go through in the beginning of the paper, sort of a a whistle-stop tour of the available evidence, right? Because I think it's really important that we talk about the empirical evidence for this idea of, of the relationship between social media, polarization, radicalization, extremism, all this stuff. So the filter bubble idea has been you know, very popular, very widely discussed, and it's very plausible, but it also seems to be false, right? There's a bunch of studies showing you know, algorithmic news doesn't seem to be any less ideologically diverse than human-selected news. People who get most of their use from social media are not more polarized than people who don't. People who use the internet more polarization is increasing at a lower rate. Polarization in the US is increasing fastest among older people, use the internet less. So that starts to lead to questions like, well, what about the rest of the media system, right? What about cable news? You can look across countries as well. Plenty of countries with um, advanced economies with lots of social media use don't have increasing polarization. So there's something else going on. The best evidence we have for what could be happening comes from two studies where they actually asked people to stop using Facebook. One was in the US, and I think it was immediately before the 2018 midterms, where they asked people to stop using it for a month. And there they saw that an index of polarization measures decreased a little bit. So, this was issue position polarization, um, how far apart people were ideologically when you asked them, you know, how do you feel about gay rights? How do you feel about abortion? How do you feel about gun control? This type of thing. So, you know, that study has been used to argue that. Uh, social media is causing polarization. And in the American context, it's that, that may be true. But there was just another study that came out that was in Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, where they asked people to stay off Facebook again uh, during uh, Genocide Remembrance Week. And what they found there was the people who were off Facebook were more polarized. And digging a little deeper into that, what they found is that's because people's offline social networks were very uniform. So in this case, social media was actually providing uh, diversity that they didn't get in their day-to-day lives. So there's some relation because we can see these causal effects, but it's not unidirectional and it's not straightforward. It's not like, well, you know, if we just shut off Facebook or, you know, shut off, well, all of them really, Facebook, Twitter, the whole, the whole, comat, right. That we would solve our political problem. I think that's, um, that's actually a kind of, a of, of very wishful thinking, right? That's the, Opposite of the opposite side of technology hype. If you believe that the hype that you know technology is all powerful, it can shape societies and has all of these solutions within it, um, then you might also believe that the solution to society's problems is technical. And unfortunately, it's not. However, and this is where I try to go in the paper. Even if it's not the primary cause or the main driver it may still be a useful place to intervene in these dynamics, because it's a powerful media system. Before we move to that part,
2: do you th- sort of think on some level, social media is is off the hook on on the causation question? or Or do you still regard there to
3: be, you know, questions to be answered there? I think the exact nature of the relationship is very interesting. But, you know, for me, it's maybe only an intellectually interesting question. I mean, What do you get if you find out the answer to that, right? I mean, do you want to sue them? I mean, okay, you could in principle, you know, sue social media companies out of existence or regulate them out of existence. But I don't think you can erase the form, right? If all of these companies went bankrupt, we would have new ones tomorrow. You can't uninvent global social media.
2: Let's talk about the types of ideas that you address in terms of what social media might be used for to depolarize the the conversation in the United States. So you focus in particular on algorithmic systems, uh, recommender systems, the types of technologies that are employed
3: at scale on social media. So what are you going for here? To start with, I try to take sort of at face value this idea of exposure diversity, right? So I, I, I just sort of reeled off a bunch of um, experiments that suggest that, you know, it's not an exposure diversity problem. But, you know, exposure to the other side does produce, you know, better understanding, warmer relations. I mean, it, in some sense, this is completely intuitive. There's also a really good um, meta-analysis of, I think there's like 500 studies that came out a few years ago about intergroup contact. And yes, intergroup contact reduces prejudice, increases understanding. There's something fundamental about contact with the other side that is good. But is it good on social media and under what conditions? And in fact, there's a line of research suggesting that merely increasing exposure to the other side can make things worse. Uh, And this is the sort of bad argument scenario. You know, you're talking to something, someone always gets you into an argument rather than resolving something. The, this was best summed up at a peacebuilding conference I went to, where someone was talking about online chat spaces for peacebuilding. And they said, unmediated chat polarizes. So it has to be the, the right kind of contact. So what is that right kind of contact is sort of the, the first avenue I go down in this work. How, how can algorithmic systems give us the right type of contact? What, what do you think
2: companies like Facebook or Twitter should do? What should they build that would, would do that?
3: You know, there's there's uh, one study that showed that just asking people to subscribe to a counter-ideological news source. So, you know, if you're a liberal, you add, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe Fox and, and um, the American Conservative or something and vice versa. Right. If you're, a, you know, I often just use uh, red and blue for the two sides here, in part because I want to abstract a, a bit away from the details and talk about how conflict works in general. Right that's part of what I'm what I'm trying to say here is we know quite a lot about conflict in general. So, you know, if you're on blue, you subscribe to a couple of red news sources. If you're on red, you subscribe to a couple of blue news sources. And you do this for a month and you get like, a, you know, what they saw experimentally was like a one point drop in uh, effective polarization. For reference, um, effective polarization has been increasing by about um, half a point a year over the last few decades, right? So it's it's real, but it's not large. And so then the question is, well, okay, can you do better than that? Well, first of all, that's only experiments with news. Social media is much more than news, right? Much more than professional journalism. And how do you avoid these sort of backfire effects? And one of the clearest pieces of uh, of reasoning or lines of research seems to be that tone matters, civility matters. It really is hard to listen to someone who is hostile If you follow that line of thinking, then what we need is not merely let's see more from the other side, but let's see the best that the other side has to offer. Let's see the clearest, you know, most reasoned, most civil arguments. And it sort of sounds corny to tell everybody to calm down. Um, But, you know, there's pretty good evidence that if you're going to contact the other side, you should contact people who are going to be nice about it. And you see this in mediation and peace building, right? You have to create a space with some rules for how you converse with each other. So bringing it back to algorithmic intervention, we already have toxicity classification models. So they're used for, um, you know, bullying, hate speech, stuff like this. Uh, It wouldn't be very hard to repurpose them to say, is this a reasonable argument? Is this civil? And say, okay, we're going to show you stuff from the other side, but only stuff from the other side that is civil in some way. If you're going to follow the filter bubble hypothesis, that's the tweak on it that I think you would need to actually make it work. Do you feel that
2: the systems that exist right now could make that possible? Is it is it something where the kind of, I don't know, computational linguistics or uh, other types of approaches to discerning the semantics of the content are advanced enough to be able to tell whether a, a, a
3: an argument or a discussion is civil? I mean, more or less, yes. Right. So, I mean, you're always going to run into problems with sort of sarcasm and sort of memes and deep culture meanings. Right. So I, I'm sure you've had on the show, people have discussed the challenge and like, you know, how do you build an automated hate speech classifier? You know, can you even do that? And all of that is a problem. But I would say on average, yes, you can do this. And the technology is there. So in particular, there are now uh, techniques to look at, not just the content of a single message, but the content of an entire conversation and the context of that conversation as well. Who are these people? Where are they in the social network? Um, what types of other conversations have they been involved in? And so this is already being used for misinformation, hate speech, bullying, this, this type of stuff. So I don't know of any reason in principle why you couldn't use this and say, "Ah, uh, yeah, this was, this was a good argument, right? Uh, versus this was a bad argument. Probably how you would end up doing this is you would have people go in and label these conversations as productive or unproductive. And so then, you know, you can imagine trying to build a sort of Raiders guideline, like, you know, let's look at this common thread and tell me if they were, they were fighting well or fighting poorly. Obviously there's some subjectivity there, but, again, I really have to appeal to our sort of personal emotional sense of what's a good fight versus a bad fight. Um, Because I think we all know, because I think we've all had both experiences. So you point to
2: three specific areas where algorithmically we could intervene on social
3: platforms. Can you describe those? I call them uh, moderation. So that's what content is on the platform. Ranking. I mean, that's kind of—it's a vaguely technical term, right? It's sort of the score that you give to each item, and then all of us see the top scored items. But it's—you can think of it as who sees what, right? It's also personalization, and then uh, user interface or presentation. You know, what are the buttons that we have? What are the verbs that we can take? So you, your listeners may be familiar with a study that replaced a like button with a respect button and got more people clicking respect on arguments that they disagreed with but thought were solid points uh, so those are uh, you know more or less the three places that you can intervene i mean the challenge in sort of going down this line is these are huge products and many different types of products right and so you have to scope it somewhere you could also start talking about well you know maybe netflix shouldn't carry violent movies and so forth but for what i'm trying to talk about that's a bit out of scope so i'm talking about the algorithmic changes one could pursue you also point to research that suggests that these types of algorithmic changes
2: over time could actually influence the behavior of users. What what
3: evidence is there for that? Well, I mean, we know they do, right? I mean, the whole idea that you could intervene in social media to change politics is premised on the idea that social media influences behavior. But more concretely, there's there's some fun work that's been done along this line. So if you take a Uh, let's say, call it a productive comment, a good comment, a civil comment, and you put that at the top of a comment thread after a news article, then the rest of the discussion is better, you know, as rated by human readers, um, but also as rated by the number of interventions that the moderators had to make. Or you put a, um, this was an experiment on one of the um, science forums on Reddit. They put uh, just a three-line notice at the top saying here are the things that are appropriate for this thread we've got, or for this um, subreddit, we've got, you know, 1200 volunteer moderators who are going to remove things. And just adding that notice, something like halved the number of comments that moderators had to delete from their users. So we know that very simple interventions change the tone of subsequent discussion. So if I'm, I don't know, maybe
2: a kind of rabid free speecher and critic of social media companies and their intervention in our discourse more generally, I might say, Jonathan wants an algorithmic nanny state. Uh, you know, he wants to interfere in our God-given right to tell each other to fuck off. And why, why in the world would we want these platforms to social engineer our conversations?
3: Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I'm normally on the on the sort of other side of this argument. I mean, what we have in all of these problems is a tension between different values. Um, so I'm currently involved in other work that's actually trying to list, you know, what are the values that a recommender system should have? And so you have things like, you know, liberty and agency and all of this sort of individual censored, uh, centered stuff, right? Um, I should be able to, you know, read whatever I want, post whatever I want. And um, those are important. I agree with that. And the UN Charter of Human Rights uh, guarantees a, a right to self-expression. Interestingly, the uh, UN Charter of Human Rights said, regardless of political opinion, that's an international human right. You should be able to talk no matter your opinion on politics. But, you know, we also have other values. So um, we've got more societal level values. You know, for example, we want our democracy to work. And that means a bunch of things. That means accurate information and it means constructive discourse. So my response to people who sort of make this kind of you know nanny state or censorship argument is not that they're wrong but that it's always a balance between different goals and i have the same response to um you know people largely in the present moment sort of um on on the blue side who are calling for much tighter controls and much more censorship um, which is to say you know the things they're pointing at are real and they're not wrong but that's not the only value So we have to find some way of balancing all of the different things that we care about. So there's another argument out there that says
2: that the concern about polarization uh, may be misplaced, particularly at this moment in America, that we've got severe democratic erosion. We just saw, for instance, a white supremacist insurrection um, at the Capitol, that people, particularly people of color, are being disadvantaged in, in this set of circumstances. And this isn't really a, a left, right or a, a, a blue, red scenario. How, do, how does your thinking fit with that critique or challenge it? It's a
3: yes and. So, I mean, I think all of that is basically true. You know, race is obviously a huge factor in American politics. And racial justice is, is one of the, the you know, major issues of not just our generation, but the generations preceding and the generations following. right? So it's, it's ridiculous to just sort of sweep that under the rug. But I I would say sort of two things I would add to that. The first is that we need not just justice, but peace, right? A functioning democracy requires both justice and peace. Peace is, you know, important for security. It's, uh, you know, it's important for people to be able to express themselves. I mean, people are scared. People all across the political spectrum are scared to say what they think because politics has crept into every corner of society. Uh, you know, and there's imminent violence and we're destroying families and we're destroying social capital and we're destroying the ability of our government to function. That's dysfunctional. That's bad. What we want is a just peace. And this is a concept that originally came from studies of how wars should end. You know, it's not enough for people to stop shooting each other. You have to address the underlying injustices or you're going to have a war again. So, uh, and this is why I like conflict transformation as, as as a practice, because it integrates theories of peace and justice. So that's the, the first thing. The other thing I would say is that is an excellent capsule summary of what one side in the argument would say. And like, that's, that's the blue side of the, of the narrative, right? What's the red side? And it's not that these narratives are going to be equivalent or, you know, that the complaints of the red side are going to trump the requirements of racial justice or anything like that. Uh, It's just that something a bit less than half of the people in this country uh, have a different set of concerns, Uh, you know, without passing judgment on whether those concerns are valid or invalid. We're not going to get very far without being able to talk about what their concerns are in some way. And if you're having trouble articulating what those concerns are or or what might be legitimate about them, um, again, setting aside the question of symmetry, just, you know, are there legitimate grievances on the right? Then I would say that's a sign that you aren't talking to people on the right and you're disconnected from them. And that disconnection is going to make the progression towards uh, not only peace, but also justice much harder. You know, as I was reading the paper, one
2: of the things that I kept asking myself is, are these recommendations to the current platforms, or are these recommendations to the platforms we wish we had? I don't know how you'd answer that. Do you do you see Facebook and Twitter and TikTok implementing these ideas, and do you believe they will, or do you imagine that we have to have a new set of platforms that, that take these things into consideration?
3: I think the current platforms might implement something like this. I know that there are polarization research groups at a number of these organizations. So I know that they're thinking about it. One of the challenges here is that it's politically complicated for them to do anything. So until we as a society sort of get our heads straight about, you know, how do we think about these problems, then it's going to be uh, there are sort of counter incentives for them to do to work on them. Now I'm not saying they have no responsibility, or they should be let off the hook, or they shouldn't do anything. But one of the best ways to move that forward is to come to some sort of external consensus on one of the right things to do. Is because as many people have pointed out, you know, a small number of tech executives and engineers should not be making those choices. So so we need to get clear. I think this the the solutions that have been offered so far are a little thin. There are things like you should just ban all discussion uh, that's past a particular point on the right on the political spectrum. And uh, basically, it's the idea there is, you know, just don't let these people talk. Honestly, I don't think that's going to work. And not only do I not think that's going to work in improving the conflict, I am not sure that it's morally right to do either. You know, this week,
2: the book by Cecilia King and Shira Frankel was published um, in Ugly Truth. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it yet or any of the reviews, um, but there was actually some mention of choices that Mark Zuckerberg took, for instance, around measures of uh, conflict discord on the site mm-hmm. and whether to tune those up or down after incendiary moments like the at the trial of, of Derek Chauvin Uh, the aftermath of George Floyd or the 2020 election. Uh, And there's this sort of anecdote about him essentially deciding not to turn it down past a certain point where it harmed engagement metrics on the platform. But when you look at the kind of reality of what goes on with the platforms today and what gets reported about how they deal with these issues, how does that kind of comport to the thinking that, that went into this piece?
3: First of all, we're about five years past the point where any platform uses just engagement all of them use dozens if not hundreds of other signals um, including some that are more socially oriented and i've, um, I've there's, i did a previous paper sort of trying to catalog that there's still the question of to what degree right so do you really see platforms trading off a meaningful uh, engagement for other things it, ha- it has happened. Uh, there's a Facebook earnings report where Zuckerberg reports that there was a 5% drop in time on site for their video product as a result of their um, meaningful social interactions metric. So it does happen to at least some degree. It's hard to know from the outside whether that's a meaningful amount or not, or sort of how often these types of trade-offs for social good are being made. You know, everybody does this, but it's true, right? We do need more transparency around that. And I've got some other work where we talk about uh, you know what type of transparency would be meaningful for these platforms and and one of the ones I'm most interested in is sort of like uh, we've been sort of calling it the court proceedings, right when a company makes changes to their ranking, what were they trying to do? what was the data in front of them? what were the motivations for their decision right and so to to lay that out uh, as public information, not just for transparency sake but because and sort of this is going to your point about, you know turning up and down sort of the, the scope of polarization or extremism around, uh, you know, tuning those filters in response to various current events, right? The the challenge there is nothing is free. So, for example, suppose you care about information quality. Well, uh, you know, one, day, one way to get higher quality information is just narrow the filter so that only a very small number of very carefully vetted, you know, very established organizations uh, make it through the filter, right? So what if Facebook only showed news from the top 10 journalism organizations? Well, there's a whole bunch of drawbacks to that. One is that, you know, most of those are going to be blue tribe media. And so all of the the red tribe users are going to be upset about not being able to see their news source included, you know, for better or worse, right? Just because someone's upset doesn't mean they're right. but But it's real when people get upset. The other problem is that also sort of destroys the the promise of the internet of allowing small voices to be amplified up into prominence, right? If you uh, eliminate all of the fringe outlets, you get rid of everything, the good and the bad. And the same thing applies to, you know, hate speech filters where, you know, you start getting false positives that start interfering with with speech you might want, everything, right? So nothing is free. And while we don't have enough information to comment on whether Specific choices were right or wrong. I also think it's very easy to sort of armchair it and say, well, you should have turned this knob up at this time without knowing either what the knob actually did or what it cost to do that. Uh, so we talked about trying to sort of uprank, um, you know, comments that are not only diverse, but also civil. But I actually have my doubts that that's going to work. And I actually have my doubts that almost anything which has been proposed so far, any specific thing will work. And the reason I say that is because none of it's ever been tried at scale, at least as far as we know. Social media is big, right? I think it's very hard for many people to get their heads around just how big and how diverse, right? Because remember, you're not just doing this in the American context. You're doing this in Azerbaijan, right? And you know the dynamics of where trusted information comes from, who you should listen to, you know, what that conflict looks like are very different in Azerbaijan than they are in the US. So it's going to be hard to find a one-size-fits-all solution. However, I think the place to start is to measure polarization outcomes. We're sort of flying blind here. If we care about polarization outcomes, then we should be looking at them. And the managers making product decisions should be looking at them. And I think where this ultimately goes is we may ultimately be talking about building models that predict the polarizing or depolarizing effect of showing particular items of content or uh, particular categories of content on specific people or in specific contexts, and then optimizing for those, right? So, you know, people are starting to talk about using well-being measures for reinforcement learning. Well, what about polarization measures as well? And that's kind of a scary thought, right? We're going to, build these machines that try to learn about us um, not just as groups, but individually in some cases, and show us things to move us in a particular direction. And it's scary to think about entrusting that to machines. On the other hand, there's nothing illegitimate, per se about trying to influence people, right? I mean, that's what education is, that's what public health is. So it's a question of which types of interventions are legitimate. And also, we might be forced to include polarization measures in the algorithms to prevent them from creating conflict as a side effect or exploiting conflict. And uh, this leads to the idea in the conflict literature of a conflict entrepreneur. A conflict entrepreneur is, I mean, it sounds bad, right? But it's actually, it's used as a value-free word, meaning someone who exploits conflict for gain. So that could be an activist who supports a cause you really care about. It could be a politician you don't support who's stoking sort of us versus them. And the challenge is that appealing to conflict, appealing to divisions works. It increases civic engagement. And we see consistently that the most engaged people, you know we talk about we want civic engagement. Well, civic engagement, the easiest way to do that is to polarize people and push them towards extreme political positions because then they're very frightened and they care a lot. So if we don't want our algorithms to learn, as humans do, that stoking division is an effective engagement strategy, then we may actually be forced to include polarization measures in their operation. What you don't specify is left up to a chance. So we may, we may have to do this. I think that comes
2: back around to the thing I was kind of going on about with the idea of social engineering. And the comfort level on that, um, the extent to which people will, you know, accept that these types, I mean, I guess on some level, though, that it's already happening, you know, it's just, um, as you say, left to chance somewhat or left to uh, the profit motive or or left to um, vagaries of how these systems are, are concocted and lots of engineering decisions that may not all be, be connected or certainly aren't driven by these types of concerns.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, there's, there's no neutrality here, right? These systems are doing something. So if we don't specify what it is they should do, then we shouldn't be surprised to find that they've done something that we don't like. Of course, the catch there is who's the we, and this goes back to all of the, the sort of governance questions. Many
2: more questions to discuss in the future, and I appreciate it very much. Jonathan's trade. Thank you, Justin.
1: That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, our Tech Kids Unlimited intern, Nolan Duarte. Thanks to our guests. And of course, thank you for listening.
2: Tech Policy Press.